optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where I dig into the details of world-class performance and attempt in each interview to tease out the thought systems, beliefs, habits, lessons learned from people of all walks of life to give you small little things or very big things that you can test yourself. In this episode, we have Krista Tippett, who's been requested many times at Krista Tippett, K-R-I-S-T-A, Tippett, two Ps, two Ts. Krista Tippett is a Peabody award-winning broadcaster and New York Times bestselling author. She created and hosts the very well-known public radio program and podcast On Being and curates the Civil Conversations Project, an emergent approach to the differences of our age. She received the 2013 National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama at the White House for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. On the air and in print, Ms. Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity and inviting people of every background to join her conversation about faith, ethics, and moral wisdom, end quote. Krista was a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin and holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. Her books include Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, Einstein's God, 
subtitle, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit, and Speaking of Faith, subtitle, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It. We cover a lot in this conversation, including Krista's morning routines, Zen versus striving, are they compatible, incompatible, something else, defining the word spiritual and wise, the role of prayer for her and what she focuses on, overcoming depression, and the skills of good interviewing. There's much more to it, but I will leave my intro at that. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Krista Tippett. Krista, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. I have, I suppose like many people, heard your voice quite a lot, and I've read your words quite a lot, and I thought we might start with one of my favorite sentences of yours. And it is, anger is often what pain looks like when it shows itself in public. And this has been a a mantra of sorts that I've adopted to help me sustain the battle-weary feeling that I get on the internet at times. Could you explain Mm -hmm. the context of that quote? Well, I guess I guess the context of that quote or, or 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 how I walk around with that thought is it's such an important context and kind of piece of perspective to dealing with the level of emotion in our public life right now. Um and you know, it's in politics, but it's it's really everywhere. And we we take things at face value that we would be wiser (laughs) to not take at face value. We would be wiser to be taking more breaths and understanding that things are true of other people that are also true of us, that when we're upset, uh, often the thing we say and do is really a deflection of what we're actually upset about or how we're upset. And, uh, And, you know, in terms of our public life right now, um, this way we have of reacting to each other's surfaces is getting in the way, among other things, it's getting in the way of us grappling with all the very real things we need to grapple with that actually are of our shared interest and have to do with our common well-being. Definitely. And it's it's seemed to me also that anger is often what fear sometimes looks like when it shows itself yeah. in public. Yeah. And I've heard you say before that your father was fearful. And mm-hmm. I was hoping you might elaborate on that and in doing so just give us some context for your your childhood. Yes, and you know, maybe that's part of the reason I'm I have a sensitivity to this because I think my father had had a a, a terrible first three years of his life, which we didn't know then, but we know now is so completely formative in terms of how people handle the rest of their lives. And I'm not sure exactly what happened to him. I think he was possibly abused. It was possibly violent. At best, it was severely neglectful. And my father was this kind of larger-than-life character and that's how he presented. And of course, he was my father. So, you know, he was this huge, powerful character. But I think even from a very, very young age, I sensed that underneath he was very frightened. And um, yeah, I, had, I hadn't actually thought recently about how that may be helping me <laughs> imagine that. Um, 
in inside the, the the political dynamics in in America right now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. It's a good wrestling state. That much I know. <laughs> really, uh, the only thing I, the only sport I knew growing up was football. I was the only person I knew who was against football. Against football. <laughs> so I can't say I'm against wrestling because that was my the only sport I could be half competent at growing up. So I idolized mm-hmm. John Smith, who is just this incredible savant slash superhuman athlete in the world of of wrestling from Oklahoma, who then turned mm-hmm. into an amazing coach. Well, why were you against football? Um. I was I was again I don't know that I was always against football. I just felt like it got too much attention. And then when I got older, um, I had this enlightened moment, kind of in high school, where I, where I I was a debater. I did drama and debate, and that's actually what kept my kept my brain alive um, growing up. And and I found out that the high school football team had a fifty thousand dollar budget, which included steak dinners for all the players after every game. And I, that was, this is one of my first introductions to injustice in the world. <laughs> and I protested that and it absolutely colored my view of um, football. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a lot of money. I mean, it's a it lot of money, money now. It, it was a huge a amount money. of money in the 1960s, 70s. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a money machine, as, uh, <laughs> as a lot of people yeah. know. And do you feel, you, you mentioned drama and debate. And I, I know that uh, there, there have been a lot of formative moments, as for all people, in your childhood, then throughout high school and college, do you, do you looking back? Do you think drama and debate were good training for what you do now, or was it really just a manifestation of what you were already good at? No, I. I it's so interesting to get to be in your fifties, which you know, I have to say, <clears throat> when I turned fifty, I, I found that I, I don't, I've never cared about birthdays, and have basically found every decade to be more interesting than the last, but. This one I, I didn't like. I didn't like the number fifty. I didn't like crossing it. But uh, it, it, you know, now that I'm in it, it's um, it, there's you have a certain perspective on your life, and and I I do feel uh, not that I ever would have planned or um, f- you know foreseen what I do now. I mean, until you know, even a few years before I did it. But it does it does feel like it pulls on all these threads. Um, all these many things that I that I did in my life, and and what's interesting to me is that it actually does pull on that that drama piece, which um, you know I went away to college. I never did that again, um, and kind of here, here late in life, in in what turns out to be, I guess my big career. Um, it's there's a, there's a there's a presentational piece to it, and so I'm really grateful for that. So you mentioned college, and I have a lot of friends, many, many of my closest friends who went to Brown, and I've heard you describe it as moving to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, the the question that I'd like to pose is, if I, if I were to talk to your closest friends and ask them what your superpowers are, hmm. how would they answer that? And my, my closest friends in college? No, your closest friends now or in college because the follow-up question is were those superpowers present in college Mm -hmm. oh gosh it's such an interesting question i mean i did feel like like i had moved from one planet which was my small town in oklahoma you know bible belt um to this very different world and you know i'll tell you something interesting i i ended up spending most of my 20s in divided berlin and 
after the wall fell, I got my Stasi files. Um, the, oh, wow. the East German Secret Service, Stasi, had kept files on me from the time that I went to East Germany on a Brown Exchange program my junior year, um, which included reports on me from East German students who came to Brown uh, through that same exchange program. And then, and then later in the years I spent in Berlin, and it's so fascinating. It's like this malevolent uh, observer, malevolent. However, you know what? Like kept folders for me of <laughs> of me in my twenties, and so so in this in my Stasi file are like all the letters I wrote home to my parents from from my semester abroad, all the letters my parents wrote to me, the letters back and forth between me and my boyfriend. Um, and also the observations of these East German graduate students about me at college. It's so fascinating. So one day when I'm no longer doing this radio show, I will write this book. <laughs> um, what were some of their observations? Well, well, I mean, it was, it's, it's suffused with um, paranoia because they always assumed that I was working for the CIA which is just so ridiculous because 19-year-old college sophomores don't work for the CIA. Um, so it was like it was like observing me through this lens of paranoia. But um, they saw me as so competent in a way that I think I didn't see myself. Um, you know, like the the, the the one of them came when who when came to Brown after knowing me in East Germany, where I was just so much in learning mode and soaking everything up mode. And I guess I guess that would be one of my superpowers that I um you know, if I get curious, if I give myself over to an experience, I really give myself over to it and I guess I'm a good learner. Um and so that was the way they had experienced me, you know, full time that semester I spent there. And then uh this this woman came to Brown and she said she she for to her I was like a different person. You know, she said she knows everyone, which I never thought of myself. I never thought of myself as someone who knew everyone. Um, and she saw me as very outgoing and gregarious and a strong personality. I mean, I don't know. I look back at my college self. I look back at myself in my twenties, like many of us, I think. And I, I only remember all the self doubt and the confusion. What do you think the the principles of good learning are? By all accounts, and certainly my impression is that you are a fantastic learner, what do you think the the principles or elements of being a good learner are? Well, I guess two things come to mind. One is good questions. And I what I and I what I would also say about that is that I think, you know, learning is a process. So so even if it's something I'm spending an hour learning about. Um, I'm going to expect that my questions are more refined at the end of that hour than they are at the beginning of that hour. So it's it's being able to formulate good questions going in, but then um, not just letting your answers uh, or what you're understanding be shaped, but letting your questions evolve, um, that your questions get better and better. Um, and then I guess the other thing about learning, I think, is it kind of gets back to where you and I started about seeing what looks like anger, seeing what is expressing itself as anger, but understanding that there's something very more, being interested and open to knowing that there's something more complicated and perhaps something quite other, deeper 
than what is showing itself on the surface. And and I also think that's a quality of learning is is you know pushing for that that deeper thing that that what's beneath the surface. So I have always been, and I, this is not a good thing. Uh, quick to anger, and I could point to family influences. I could point to all sorts of things to absolve myself of responsibility, but it's been, it's been in some respects, maybe an aid, a level of aggression, but it's also Mm. been very damaging. And I remember being told a few years ago, and I don't recall who gave me this advice, but they said, do not ascribe to malice what can be explained by incompetence. And I've, I've since realized that incompetence Mm. can be replaced with a lot of things. Busy. They might just be busy. (laughs) Don't just because they gave you a one line email response to your mini novella that you sent them doesn't mean that they're <laughs> spiteful right. or angry. Maybe they just have 10 times more stuff on their plate than you do. If, if uh, anger is the emotion that I historically have been quick to, that I'm trying to learn to work with in a more constructive way, what, what emotion are you quick to? Well, you know, I have to say that I'm a redhead and I, I also... Um, well, you know, and I, it's, it's. I, I think I'm, I'm going to say this kind of proudly. I mean, I don't, I don't act out the way I used to, but um, people who've known me at other parts of my life would certainly say that I, you know, I, I had a huge temper, and um, I, I do righteous indignation really well. I, you know, I just, I do it less often than I used to. <laughs> Um, well, so Brown, you know, Brown was just like jet fuel on the fire. I, I've, I mean, my cousin <laughs> went to Brown. I have so many friends who have gone to Brown. I think I probably would have been happier there than Princeton, quite frankly. But mm. yeah, righteous indignation. That's, that's a yeah, full context. Yeah, I'm good at that. Um, I, you know, I, I think one thing about having children, which um, kind of gets to what you're talking about, is um, you see how children... Um, you know, if you and this, I think this is interesting because it's I've, you know I've read your books across the years, and you know, if if they haven't eaten enough, or they're not eating the right things, if they haven't gotten enough sleep, you know, they get cranky, they're miserable, <laughs> and it's all out on the surface. And I mean, so much of I think our bad behavior, or the behavior that we look back later and say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, um, it's also about just these elemental things about being creatures and bodies. And being tired and being hungry and not taking care of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people, we're just, we are, a lot of us, we're tired, we're stressed out. Um, but somehow as we go through life, we get less good at wearing that on the surface and sometimes saying that and stepping back rather than giving into, you know, the fit that might be another way to work out our stress or our tiredness. And this reminds me of uh, an anecdote that was shared with me a few months back, which was that Bill Clinton, so President Clinton at the time, when he was having a meeting that would lead to some type of negotiation, the first thing he would do when people came in is ask them if they'd had anything to eat or drink and make Mm. sure that they were not thirsty and not hungry before the negotiation. And, And for myself, at least, I've realized, and I would like to talk about some of the, uh, depressive periods that you've that you've yeah. worked through because that is something that i've uh I, I hesitate to use the word suffered from because it makes it seem i don't want to seem like i'm victimizing myself or, or playing the part of victim but something I've, I've learned to have to work with yeah. and i've 
I've noticed that very often when I'm trying to sit down and think my way out of some type of funk, and I'm coming up with all sorts of sophisticated or seemingly insightful reasons as to why I'm unhappy at the time or just in a low energy state, the truth is staring me right in the face. No, you haven't eaten for five hours. <laughs> and I'll sit there yeah. and I'll journal for 10 pages. It's like, no, idiot. You just need right. to you just need to go have an orange and you'll be fine. Uh, for for yourself, and I know you've you've spoken about this before and written about it, but going through depressions and let's 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 say uh, I think it was a few years ago that uh, that you went through depression. What what can you identify or explain for people what triggered or catalyzed that, and then what helped you to get over? your episode mm -hmm. of that, that episode of depression. Yeah, I think I probably had my first episode of true depression when I was a sophomore in college, but nobody had that vocabulary back then. And, um, it, it did not, I did, I would, I used the language with myself that I'd fallen into a black hole. Um, and the way it felt and the way it still looks to me like now, I almost visualize it, is that I clawed my way out of that black hole. And in fact, it was, it was a formative experience that I, I emerged with a lot of courage and a lot of determination. I mean, I kind of set a plan for my life. Um, which included how much sleep I needed every night, you know. And I, like I look back and I think, well, that was very intelligent because those are, those are the kinds of things that matter. But also, um, I I think that I well, I would say at this point, I know that I, th I think I come by this honestly. I think you know, living. I think my father was um, depressed, although that never showed on the surface. Um, I also started at Brown. Um, I had never really exercised. It's crazy because I'm not that old, but I grew up in a in the culture I grew up in, girls didn't do sports really. I mean, there were girls who did, but they were unusual. So I'd never really used my body in that way. But I started, um I started, I started this very faithful practice. I, I swam, right? Like I, I mean, everywhere I was in the world for 25 years, and I, I was a few places in those years, I swam at least every other day. And looking back, I think I, that was a way that I was, that was a form of self-care. And so um, actually that summer before this major depression set in, um, I had stopped swimming. I was, I was doing something else. I was, I was um, rollerblading, but that was a little bit different. And, and so I changed that. But I think the big answer is that I had... You know, I was in my early 30s. I I literally led a few lives at that point. I'd I'd put myself through all this change. I was always very hard on myself, um, which you know got me a long way. But uh, it was it was it's not it was much too hard to be me. Um, and I had you know I had had this career in Berlin, being a journalist and being a diplomat and. Um, and then I'd taken myself away to write a novel, and then I'd gotten married, and I'd lived in England, and um, and then gone to divinity school, and then had a baby and moved to Minnesota. And honestly, I think this depression had been waiting a long time to happen. And as as often is true of us in life, I think at the moment at which I was kind of settled enough to allow it to happen, it just took over. 
um, I had just started to see a therapist. Like I'd always thought of myself as somebody who had a happy childhood and would never see a therapist and didn't need that. But somewhere, you know, in myself, I think I, I think I got ready for this, and that was really a depression where I, I stopped, I stopped being able to sleep at all, and you know, all the classic things. Lost fifteen pounds for no reason, and eventually just, um, you know, went to bed and couldn't get out. Um, what helped me were, you know, I was very fortunate to be to take well to the medications and to have a great therapist who I saw. You know, just once a week. It was hard for me to afford that therapy at that time. In fact, a friend helped me afford the therapy. Um, but for a few years, saw this person. And I I always say, I don't, I never want to romanticize something like depression. And in the moment that someone is depressed, the last thing I would want to insist, <laughs> you know, or say is that this is good for you and you will learn from this and it's valuable. Um, I do think that 10 or 20 years later, if we if we can walk through these things and survive them, I would absolutely say that the course of my life was changed for the better because of what I had to face, the truths I faced about the things that, you know, the ways I was wounded, right? The pain I was carrying around, the ways I had been so hard on myself, so much harder than I needed to be. Um, and I And I was able to start living differently. Very over a long, you know, over years. It's kind of a long answer. Sorry. This is a long podcast. So long answers are a good fit. <laughs> what were some of the changes, if if you're able to talk about them, that you made? Oh, you know, it's this classic stuff. I again, I, it's it's interesting because I I definitely was one of these people who wasn't sure that I thought, you know, that I wasn't sure what I thought of anybody who went to therapy, and it was okay for Woody Allen to do it, right? <laughs> But um, yeah, guilty, but guilty I, is charged over here as well. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that's not me. I don't need that. And boy, did I need it. I mean, it's it's like it's these classic things of learning how I survived my childhood um, with a father who was who didn't mean to be cruel, but was. Um, I kept ahead of his sarcasm. I kept ahead of his teasing. You know, I could get um, positive approval when I blew him away, right? Like only if I did something that was so smart or that he had so not thought of, I would have these moments of um, it being okay. And so, and so that's what I did. So I pushed myself really hard and I got through my childhood and I, you know, I went I went to amazing places on that same kind of energy, but it um, it was not a way to live, and uh, it was not a sustainable way to be human. And at that point in my thirties, you know, if I hadn't found a way to um, to treat myself more gently, then I think I would have just gotten smaller after that. So I've I've not done a deep dive on this yet, but for potentially for myself, and certainly just as an area to explore, I've become very interested in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly its roots or some of at least the core tenets being similar to stoicism, which I read constantly, (laughs) for better or for worse. I think mostly for better, I guess for neutral, if we're talking about stoics. But (laughs) the, (laughs) the type of therapy, I've never done any type of consistent therapy. I have hired 
what would call people who would call themselves coaches, which may in fact yeah. uh, offer a very similar support role. But what 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 type of therapy was it that you found most helpful, or what were the characteristics that were helpful? I just want to say that one of the favorite interviews I did across the years. It was a long time ago now, so you probably haven't seen it. it was with Jana, um, um, Jennifer Michael Hecht who's a philosopher and a poet, and she wrote a book on doubt, which is just masterful. And she talks about the origins of stoicism and cynicism and how they they meant, There's she talks about them as graceful life philosophies, right? We, we think of them almost as hmm, stances against, you know, or, or neutral. But anyway, so I just want to say, I don't think stoicism is just neutral oh it's not it's not i'm i'm yeah. really being facetious because i think yeah. that stoicism for most people brings up the image of a, a cow standing in the rain or something like that yeah but it, it's 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 much more than that i mean i've yeah i've, I've done a lot of work with uh, publishing and recommending stoicism yeah. as something to explore but the the uh, there are many different types of therapy and for some people, yeah. I've, I've, I've spoken with friends, for instance, who really just need to talk, but they don't want to do it with their friends who are biased in one way or another, or they feel guilty because their friends have many different things to do. Uh, and you go down the list, there are a million different variations. What, what did you find most helpful? Yeah, I didn't do anything, you know, I, I didn't do anything fancy or exciting sounding like Jungian, Jungian therapy. Um, I had this, I was living in Minnesota at the, at the time, but I still am. And I had this just really good therapist who probably, I would say, family systems was where he was coming from. Um, but I'm not even sure I knew that language then. And um, I would say, and I think this was, you know, this was kind of, part of my survival stuff from my childhood is I'm not somebody who ever talked to anybody about any of this. I wasn't. And, and one thing I've invested so much in, and I think that that going through my depression and my therapy has opened up this whole part of my life in the last 20 years is investing in my friendships. It's not that I didn't have friends. I did. But um, I didn't lean on people um, back then. And I think I didn't. I didn't think it was safe too. So, so this was really the first time that I had just kind of told the truth. You know, I had somebody ask me questions about what it was really like to grow up in my body, in my house, um, and things that I had never said to myself. You know, being the answers, and it's just like unpeeling these layers. And then there's this. There's this terrible moment, which I'm sure everybody gets to, kind of, I don't know how far it in, in it was, six months or a year, where you, where you peel away enough layers that you're actually making progress, but you haven't, you've, you've had, and you have to do that to get into a new place, but that moment where you've learned things about yourself that are hard and true and you get vulnerable for the first time and you have not yet started to create the foundation for this new way you will live. And that's, a, you know, I remember that moment in therapy as just despairing because I just, where I just felt like, I think I said this to my therapist, I, I am damaged goods, right? You know, that's never the way I had allowed myself to think about myself or certainly anybody else to think of me. Um, 
but then um i don't know i, I kind of what, what he kind of helped me walk out of that because that also wasn't the whole story and the damage part wasn't um you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't all of me, and it kind of helps you live into other places in yourself that you haven't been able to live into because you were so catering to that fear. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense, and I think there's there's also, at least in my own depressive periods, the acute feeling, and this is not speaking for you, but speaking for myself, the acute feeling of being alone or uniquely mm. damaged. Yeah. Whereas maybe we can take solace in the fact that we were we were all dinged up by the full contact yes. sport that is life, and yeah. there are very few people who go through cradle to grave fully intact like a porcelain doll. Tends not yeah. to tends not to happen. You you mentioned a few questions, and I'd like to talk about mm-hmm. questions. Uh, what are the interviews or episodes or experiences that have helped you? to grow most as an interviewer. I don't I don't know that I've thought about that. Honestly, I feel like I've grown as an interviewer by doing it. And that sounds really simple and it's very straightforward and it's something we know more about through science now, right? But it it for me it was a, it's been a departure. Like I can't believe that I've been doing the same thing now for over 12 years. I mean, it's more like 15 years. If you think about the early days when I was creating the show. Um, I, I, I guess doing the same thing over and over again, but in this, in this constant, constant um, mode of learning. Um, I think when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, I would have been really resistant to the idea of doing the same thing for a long period of time, right? That would have felt like um, stasis to me, like kind of not growing anymore. But I, I, I do think that this, you know, and I never thought of myself as an interviewer until I kind of created this job. Um, and it's, I, I still, I... I, I still consider myself to be kind of a newcomer and an interloper in the world of media, which I know is ridiculous at this point. Uh, <laughs> I'd say it's pretty I mean, ridiculous. I'm realizing it's ridiculous because that's not the way other people see it. Um, but uh, so, so, so I think that clearly, you know, I do feel like I'm doing something I'm good at. Like I know how to do this. I have, I have a good set of skills and instincts that lend themselves to this. But I, I truly would say that what's, what I, how I've gotten better is doing it over and over and over again. And that is such a thrilling thing to get, to get better at something over time. What, what were some of the mistakes that you made early on as, as an interviewer? Hmm. Because I can think a lot of, mm-hmm. I'm still making mistakes, but I can think of a lot mm-hmm. of mistakes that I've made that fall into a handful of categories. What were, what were sort of mistakes you made early on or common novice mistakes? Oh, I, I suppose I learned at some point early on that I was better when I could stop, that, that I was better when I was really planted in the fact that it wasn't about me, that I was, you know, that the point of the interview was drawing out this other person. And um, when I could get out of the way 
and that that doesn't mean you know like I'm I'm an essential person in the interview, right? Like we're you know you and I are having a conversation. I actually think your job right now is harder than my job because you know you are creating this narrative arc. You're hosting this experience, right? So I'm not. I'm not belittling the role I had to play. I still had to ask those good questions. I still had to listen well. I had to be able to go with the conversation. But as clear as I could get about the fact that it was about them and not about me, I would I would be better. I used to I used to have this experience that um, uh, I would do all these rituals, right? Like to be to be to have good energy. And at some point early on, I realized that that sometimes when I went into the studio for an interview and I was tired for whatever reason, I hadn't been able to get to sleep, right? Or I, had, you know, I hadn't been able to drink the right amount of caffeine. Um, it, was a better, it, was a, it was a better experience for me and for them. And, and that, you know, that was one of the signals for me um, that when I for, even you know, by force had to surrender, that that actually was, was part of what made it good. How did that manifest itself in the conversation? Was it longer pauses, more silence? Was it just a a greater degree of of focus because you were summoning every ounce of strength that you had after an all nighter <laughs> to to look at <laughs> look them in the face and actually hear their words? What? How did the that surrendering manifest itself? Yeah, well, I guess it did manifest as a a calm. I mean, you know, I was worried about it as tiredness, but it also, it took an edge of energy off, which in fact was helpful to letting the other person's energy be what drove the conversation. Um, I think it made me more porous, right? Because I wasn't able to gear up the way I thought I should, right? That in fact, I was letting more in. What habits, I probably should have asked this at the beginning, what habits of other interviewers annoy you? <laughs> I can't, I really, I will have to laugh if it's like four or five things I've been doing repeatedly in this conversation. But <laughs> oh, No, no, is there, no, no. You is there anything that... It's such an impulse. I feel like it's an impulse. My answers are impolitic. Um, oh, that's okay. <laughs> there's a lot. There's most of what, most of what I see, that's a big statement. Much of what I see that calls itself interviewing, um, at least let's say in news. I mean, there's so many interesting things happening. There's so many new platforms, right? And this is one of them. Um, although I'll say, you know, I'll say in, in, in podcasting, what can happen because it is so easy. I mean, I had to actually start a public radio show, which was much harder than it should be, right? It took years and it was like being hazed for years. And, you know, and I can't even believe it, it happened because it was so difficult. But that was the only way I could get this thing out there. And that's not true anymore. You can, you can start your podcast. But, but the, the danger of that is, is not to understand that there's a craft, right? Um, not to put any rigor into it. Um, because there is a craft to, to, making, to, to creating a conversational space that is, that is listenable um, and that goes somewhere and that might and that will be affecting for the person who's being interviewed as well as the people listening. Anyway, but, but so that's new. That's a new phenomenon. But um, I mean, you know, even in public radio, which I love, um, the, the nature of the, of the experience and of the way things work is that 
people who we hear as interviewers are have been handed a list of questions by producers which they pose and then they move on to the next question and that's i mean that's just not a conversation to me right it's, it's the 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 interview proceeds without any reference to what's just been said for the most part um so it's something almost scripted or it's scripted on their end and um and that drives me crazy and there's just a lot of lost opportunities for uh, revelation and I get, but I guess the other thing that drives me crazy is, is that when people are going for revelation, um, it's often in the form of making their questions sound tough. It's about how they sound and how they present. And you know, we actually reward and laud interviewers who uh, push their subjects into corners and embarrass them. Um, who put people on the defensive and then they strike out and then that creates the conversation we talk about. Um, I just don't, I, I think, I don't think that, I think that rarely accomplishes anything um, aside from something entertaining, something that demeans the both of the people in the conversation and demeans us by enjoying it. I agree. I think that it's, it's, adding division to yeah a world that is already divisive enough yeah. in a lot of respects here's here's a, a bit of a gear shift but this is a this is a question from one of my dear friends who is a huge fan of your show as are many many people of course he would love to know what you read to your kids or have read to your kids <laughs> Well, my kids are now eighteen and twenty. Right. So, so before that, <laughs> before that, when when you were oh, reading, to I don't know that I read. I mean, I remember reading to my kids was just one of the. Well, it was both beautiful and exhausting. I mean, I also remember the nights where they would say, "Read me another story," and I was, "Oh, please, let me go to bed." Um, uh, but the, but it's also true that those were such special moments but you know i read margaret wise brown i mean the kind of good night moon in that genre i mean i i am a huge library user and so i took my kids to the library all the time and we would walk away with stacks and stacks of books uh, more than like buying books and actually i mean i didn't have a lot of money to spend when they were really little um so we just i would just say we read everything what i also did as my kids got older um, is that I would read <laughs> I would, when they were kind of a little bit too old for the for the children's books, but liked um, liked being read to at night, even just to fall asleep. Like I would read New Yorker articles or <laughs> pieces from this New York Times book review that were just educational and enjoyable, and I, I really liked that period when they allowed me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm going to sprinkle in questions from fans of yours and fans of mine as we go through this. Uh, so this isn't this is another fan question, and I'm paraphrasing in part, but trimming them down in some cases. Mm. So I appreciated her interviews with Mary Oliver and other and poets. What yeah. are top three poems she'd recommend? So for someone who is, I'll just rephrase this a little bit. For someone who is allergic poetry or has never viewed themselves as liking poetry for whatever reason. Yeah. Maybe they just had a bad teacher or a bad day in school. 
what are three poems or, or poets that you would suggest they start with? Well, I have to say, I think that's a daunting question because I, I probably won't give the best answer. You know, I, I do interview so many poets these days, but I, and I, and I meet people who tell me that, you know, they discovered poetry through my show and that just thrills me. But, you know, honestly, I'm just like everybody else and that poetry has eluded my attention, for, you know, for a lot of my life. And I, I love it. And yet it, it, it kind of hurts going in and I have to force myself to read it. So I think I'm fortunate to be in this position where, you know, if I get paid to like draw out, to go sit with Mary Oliver and, um, and soak up poetry. I, I would say, I'm <clears throat> just so I'm, so what comes to mind, these are just the three poems that come to mind right now. I mean, I do actually think Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, is incredible. I think it's a poem that has saved lives. Um, and there's a line in there that actually comes to me at interesting times, and it's not unrelated to some of the things you and I have been talking about. You know, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And sometimes that's such an important thing to be able to tell ourselves. That's beautiful. Um, it is beautiful. And uh, another poem that I found really important this year, I interviewed a poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. You know what? I, I literally just pulled up her name because I was going to mention her. Please continue. Yeah. So she has this poem called Kindness, which she wrote after she was, she, she may have even been on her honeymoon. She was with her husband I think they were in Colombia. Something happened. They were robbed. I mean, they had this really traumatizing experience so that she's like in a different country, you know, sitting by the side of the road. Her husband takes off to find help. But she actually wrote this, pro this poem about called Kindness about what happened, you know, about what happened after that experience. And it's, it's a, a reminder. It's just beautiful. It tells a story, but it's also... It's it's kind of it's lines that you can carry around with you that are a reminder um, that we have we each of us have so much power in any given day to make the day of a lot of people right or <laughs> um, and we feel there's so many things for us to feel powerless about but that's huge um, so I like it and it is about kindness but it's unromantic right it's, it's nothing fluffy touchy feely about it. Um, I guess the other thing I just recommend is a book. Um, Rilke is probably the name, if, if there's one name of somebody else who's not alive that's come up more often in my show. I mean, most often it's probably Rilke. And there's a book, um, a translation of his um, Book of Hours, which is called Book of Hours, Love Letters to God. And um, it's translated by a Buddhist teacher named Joanna Macy. And a friend of hers who's also Buddhist, who's a psychotherapist named Anita Barrows. And I've interviewed both of them across the years. And I, Rilke's German, because I, I lived in Germany for seven years. And for some bizarre reason, there's part of my brain that is in German. So I, I'm very fluent in German. And Rilke's German is exquisitely beautiful. It, it has, it bears no relation to the kind of guttural German that is in all of our ears from movies. And it's almost like he has his new his own language. And um, Joanna and Anita have translated, have turned that into English. And um, it's a book that I return to again and again, the poems in there. And uh, given that you speak both languages, you feel like it captures the essence of 
of Rilko's German? I, I do, and but it does it like I've never been happy with any of the translations of Rilke, um, any of the others out there. There's one translator of his letters to a young poet that I like, which is an older translator, um, Herder Norton. Um, but this poetry, it's a it's a creative work, right? Like they have not tried to um, translate every word as it appears. They they have they have done something creative and and that that veers away from the text in a way that captures what it really does in another language. I'll have to check that out. Hmm. I, we won't we won't get into it. But I uh, lived in Berlin for a while myself in two thousand five. Oh, you did. When was that? This was two thousand five. I lived in. Prenzlauerberg for about mm-hmm. three months and spent a bit of time in East Berlin for boxing. And it, it was incredible how, even at that time, how different <laughs> I mean, you crossed a line and architecturally and yeah. just culturally, everything was different. I had, a, I had a fantastic time. German, unfortunately for me, is uh, maybe it's due to the noun cases and whatnot, but I, <laughs> it is the one language that I lose like sand through the fingers mm. faster than any other. I, I, it's really a shame, but because I love the language, but ah, I can't win them all. Uh, so, so a few things I wanted to mention. So Naomi Shiebnai was the first poet and I was introduced to her through a friend who felt compelled for whatever reason, this doesn't happen to me often, <laughs> to read a poem to me. Mm. And I thought when I read her work, oh, I can actually understand this because <laughs> in previous encounters with poetry, my overwhelming thought was, and it was often presented in an academic environment where the the less, the more incomprehensible it was, the more valuable it was seen, and I just didn't get it. Um, there's another mm. book that I picked up about a year ago. I've been trying to focus less on being obsessed with productivity all the time, and part of Part of that is trying to focus on beauty that doesn't necessarily have a point for the sake mm, of beauty. I love that. Yeah. And that, so that, that's what, that was one of my learning curves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like that last 5%. I'm still working on it. Yeah, it's like that last 5% that's going to make you a miserable wretch and <laughs> maybe not worth it. So I picked up yeah. this book because of the title, which I don't do that often, but a very thin book of poetry called Night Sky with Exit Wounds. I just loved it. Mm. The imagery that that conjured, and I will warn people, it is uh, very sexually graphic. So if you were sensitive who's, to who's that, the... beware. Ocean Vuong. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the Vietnamese last name properly, but uh-huh. V U O N G. Hmm. Really thin, and I, I committed to reading one poem per day in the morning. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, which I'm doing right now with the Tao Te Ching, which is the book that mm. probably is in the top four that have come up most often with in my own podcast. Mm. Uh, you mentioned love letters to God. And I'd like to talk about language for a second. Uh, The word God is tricky for a lot of reasons, as you are well familiar. And I'm not going to focus on that right now, but I will ask, this is actually a question from a fan. If you were to choose one word, common or uncommon, which is most important to humanity... (laughs) What would it be? And that's a huge question, but I'll let you. Well, okay, I'll take just a... say it would not be God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's yeah, or or important for us uh, in this God, the word modern God, epoch? The word, yeah, I mean, the word God is too small, and it's too overused and misused. And um, oh, I don't know. You know, honestly, I would probably say something 
uh, that might sound cheesy because it's another overused word, but I, I think the word love is, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 I, I'm, I've been writing and talking a lot about this over the last couple of years that, that, the, that the word love is so watered down and, and, and kind of ruined. Uh, and yet um, it's just all, it's the, it's the only thing big enough um, if we can recapture it in all of its complexity for our life together. And again, if we can recapture it as something practical and not merely romantic, um, passionate. I think we need to keep the passion to it. And it is, you know, love is kind of an amazing word because um, even though it is completely ruined, and I just yesterday I, I interviewed Al- Alain de Botton about love and sex and marriage, this philosopher, and. Uh, and we talk the whole time, you know, have the language of falling, right? That we use, that it's just something you fall into and fall out of. Um, and yet, uh, there's only ultimately one way to say, I love you. And those are some of the most incredible words and the most affecting words that any of us can ever hear at any moment. So I think even though it's ruined, that might be my choice if I had to choose one. So I have i have had and maybe this is from i blame it on the language learning and having studied whether whatever it is spanish japanese chinese etc that i'm i get very anxious maybe this is just also my ocd at work with uh amorphous or nebulous words if, yeah. if something's not well defined for me I, I don't like to use it so i've avoided using a lot of words whenever possible success i don't like to use very much or successful i i do the same thing there are lots of words that are just messed up what what other words do you try not to use or do you think people should use less oh i i mean i do this all the time but of course now you're asking me and i uh <laughs> and we can come back to it too Oh, you know, I actually think I I work a lot with words like justice and privilege. We're just doing a show on whiteness. And it's like some of the things that we need to have big conversations about together. And, and I mean, actually just have to start like with baby steps. We're so far from knowing how to have certain conversations, especially around race. But I think the whiteness conversation, even with white among white people, is a big one, but we we've loaded down. Um, you know, there are these words and these phrases um, that are attached to those conversations that just are conversation stoppers. Definitely, that that are very meaningful for the people who are using them, right? That have a lineage and have substance, but elicit immediate defensive reactions are immediately polarizing to the extent that they are counterproductive. And I feel like there's a whole, there's a whole lot of that around race and, and even words like peace and justice. I I don't, I don't use words like that. Social. What is it? I like to, what is it? What is the, um, I like to talk about, um, you know, social healing rather than social activism. Um, there are a lot of words we use that we act like have inherently positive connotations, like innovation or progress. Don't, right? I mean, 
there's a, there's a lot of things we do in the name of progress and innovation which are impulsive or which are so bounded by what we can see at the moment that are going to have terrible effects 20 years from now. I mean, I think the best example of this is like what we did with food in the latter half of the 20th century and how when I was growing up, you know, my mother being able to make dinner by opening a box and a can was progress. And in fact, you know, we have just systematically messed up our bodies, our agriculture, <laughs> um, and our planet. And so I think we need to be really wary, especially, I mean, success is a good one. You're right. Especially about these words that we kind of reflexively think are good. We need to question a lot of that. We need to be more thoughtful. Well, even happiness can fall into that category. Oh, when, terrible. Yeah. yeah, I don't think happiness is a word I use very much. Flourishing. I like that word. <laughs> so I want to mention a few things. The first is that the same friend, or I should say one of the friends, so Matt Mullenweg, who's just a brilliant entrepreneur, very thoughtful, soulful guy, who's, uh, I suppose, thought of typically as a lead developer of WordPress, which powers yeah. 26%. I know, he's amazing. So he, I've been so honored that he, I think he, he quoted me in oh, his he's a big fan. speech. He's so amazing. He's a big fan. And his New Year's resolution assignment to me was to have you on the podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> I've given him his own New Year's resolution, which explains the Twitter back and forth. <laughs> with to do him, a silent retreat. To do a silent retreat. <laughs> but he introduced me to a book years ago, and I believe mm. it's called Words That Work. And it's by Frank Luntz, who is, I, I believe he was a uh, Republican political strategist. And putting any partisan feelings aside, it, it makes, it's, it, uh, it really underscores the importance of the words that you use and how... Mm -hmm. The words you use affect your, they affect or perhaps just are your thinking. And then that, of course, yes. affects everything else. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's so critical. I mean, you mentioned the whiteness episode. You should have a thumbnail of my head. I look like American History X. I'm the palest human you've ever seen. But the, <laughs> the uh, putting my, my hair loss issues aside, the, uh, I, I found that and I won't spend too much time on this, but it, it's a very worrisome or worrying trend that I'm observing, which is in, say, a conversation about race, uh, there is a tremendous, and I think it's it's both self-induced and contributed to by outside factors. I mean, I can't do a Q&A anywhere without getting some scoffing comment about white privileged male, and it shuts down yeah. the conversation. Yeah. There's so much self-loathing among, for instance, uh, people who are white. And that is a really broad category, right? I mean, they could be yes. recent immigrants from Albania. They could be yeah. uh, fill in the blank. And so it's, it's but I, I do think that it's important to realize if you, and this comes back to the point you made about interviewing, if you immediately put someone on the defense and shut them down, even though you might get the cheap applause for that, yeah. it is not in the long-term constructive. And in fact, I think it's very, 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 it sows the seed of later destruction in many, many That's ways. Right. All right, shifting gears, getting getting off of hardball with Chris Matthews and let's move to <laughs> Eastern practices and philosophies just, hmm. to, just to temper it. 
Uh, this is a question from a fan. Sometimes I find Eastern practices to be demotivating. Mm. How, does, how can you reconcile Zen and striving for success? This is a sentiment that I've heard a lot of type A folks, myself included, talk about amongst friends related to even meditation. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my edge type of uh, concerns. Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do want to say one thing. I, I, I think also it's like Zen. I mean, you can be an incredible meditator and be very narcissistic, right? So, so, so first of all, it's not like any of these things magically uh, <laughs> change you or make you a better person. But putting that aside. I'm meditating um, to become more narcissistic. Am I doing it wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have that as another conversation. Um, uh, Well, I, you know, honestly, I think I'm like them. I think that I, um, as I say, I've always, I I get a lot done. I personally... Um, even after I started to like vicariously benefit greatly from the conversations with um, Buddhists and contemplatives, just couldn't do it myself, which is crazy because, you know, I, I was saying to somebody recently, I mean, meditating is, in fact, one of life's few instantaneously rewarding activities. I mean, I really, I mean, I have had across the years just these one-off experiences of putting myself in that place or being in a setting where I was put in that place. And it, 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 it is transformative, even in some ways that stay with you. And yet I could not force myself to keep doing it every day. Um, so I guess one thing I would say, I think, I think these, this matter of spiritual practice and what spiritual practice works for us, it gets to be personal. You know, we are, we are different. And so what actually changed for me, I mean, I at some point decided that I just, again, even though I'd had these amazing experiences and utterly believe in that, I just thought it's not for me. It's when I started doing yoga um, that I started to let this into my life. And and what I told myself, and this is, I think, true, but it's also it's also kind of my narrative, right? Is that I needed it needed to be active. Like I need I needed my body to be moving for to to calm my mind down. And and I do a very kind of athletic kind of yoga, and I love that. I will say that very gradually, um, I have held it. I have held these these spiritual technologies in high regard. I have continued to speak with teachers. I've continued to have these kind of one off experiences, um, and I have very gradually developed a really modest practice where you know I I spend ten minutes every morning, and that's up from six last year, and uh, and that's while my tea steeps. So it even I'm even like killing two birds with one stone, <laughs> but and it has calmed me down. I think I was ready to be calmed down. Um, I, it will change you. I, I think whether it takes your edge off depends on how, how much in charge you are of change of like how you're moving through the world to begin with. I think it also, at least where I've landed, it not everything needs to have an edge, right? So if you're no, if, if you're looking right. for a scalpel to cut something effectively, yes, you want an edge. But if you're trying to sleep, you don't want to lay on a bed of <laughs> razor yeah. blades. And I, I've I've also 
noticed oftentimes, for me at least, having only meditated consistently for the last two or three years, that it allows me to be, be more observant of my own thoughts and therefore more precisely determine what I need and want so that I'm not using an edge to charge through brick walls in a direction yeah. that I don't need to be heading in the first place. Right, right. I think it, um, one of the things that I find really fascinating is how it changes one's experience of time. And, um, you know, I've I've thought a lot over the years. I know from my conversations with scientists and from the the kind of study I did of Einstein, you know, that time is an illusion. I mean, it's like the way we're experiencing it is the way our senses are experiencing it. Um, so, for example, so so we walk around with some illusions, like you're just as you're saying, you know, that that certain things are a certain way, and we have to manage them that way. That in fact aren't reality based and. So I used to, um, and I think this is very much the question you're asking, like I, I get a huge amount done in the first hour to hour and a half that I'm awake in the morning. Like I, I'm a little bit OCD about my email inbox and I, I can't stand for it to be more than one screen. Um, and I have to act on everything before I can get rid of it. But like, you know, I am on top of, I'm on top of a lot of things. And, um, but the way I used to work is that I get up early and I would just be clearing through correspondence and like my colleagues would get into the office and, you know, <laughs> their inboxes would be full of all this stress for me. And what I had told myself forever is that this is how I got everything done. This is how I stayed on top of all these jobs I'm doing. This is how I was productive. So then when I just when I committed myself to sitting quietly before I opened my inbox, you know, before I did anything like that, I didn't get as much done before seven o'clock in the morning. But it all got done, right? Right. Like, <laughs> so so I you know, and this was in a this is a strange feeling that I I felt I was on by some by some measure less productive, but that did not mean that there wasn't time in the day, and it was much less stressful, and it was less stressful for the other people on the other end of my emails. And then there's the, also the question of what are you being productive for? Yeah, <laughs> if it's to improve your quality of life on some level, then you are in fact being more productive by being less productive. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's a question and it it I think reinforces for me the importance of defining one particular word and uh, this this may be what you just described so you don't have to repeat that if that's the case but one of these one of the fan questions is what can one do daily to begin a small but marked increase in spiritual awareness so I'd like to pose that question, but I'd also like you to define spiritual for us, because this is one of the yeah. words that I've dodged myself for the most part. And living in San Francisco, you can only imagine how many different ways this word is used. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, I mean, you can barely walk down the street without tripping over a didgeridoo and uh, someone doing acro yoga and so on. So the uh, spiritual in how would you define spiritual? And then if you'd like to take a stab at this question, what someone can do daily to begin a small but marked increase in spiritual awareness? Well, I think I think practices are important. And I do think that everybody gets to find 
um, what works for them, where it works for their personality type, what works for their life. I mean, you know, it's the same thing like if you're talking about prayer. So, I mean, there are a lot of people who pray, um, but there are so many forms of doing that, and and they don't all work for everyone. So, so I, I do. Th- I think what I think is important in human life that our spiritual traditions have always known is ritual. Right. So in a way, what we're talking about, I mean, you could say that your meditation practice is also a form of ritual. It's it's setting aside time when you are recollecting yourself. Right. Um, and and now we know from science, you're also calming yourself. You're doing all these great things for your well-being on every level. Um, but what I would want to say also about spiritual practice, beginning a spiritual practice. is So I think ritual is really critical because I just think as creatures we need it too. I think it's a human need. And spiritual life benefits from that. But also I, I, I don't like to think of spiritual life as, as a compartment of life. I, I think that it's how you move through your days. And I think those rituals actually can help can help you internalize that. It's it's as much about kind of how you are, you know, how you are present to whatever you are doing. That's also spiritual practice. And then something else I would say about that is that it's not about being perfect. It 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 is, but it is about intentionality, and it's about forgiving yourself, and it's about being gentle with yourself and others, and. It's a, it's a gentle thing. It, you know, it doesn't have to be something you wear on your sleeve or that you could wear on your sleeve. I mean, I, one of the conversations I've had with, this was Sylvia Borstein, who's kind of a Jewish Buddhist teacher, and talks about, you know, spirituality can be folding the towels sweetly, right? Uh, I mean, some of the great mystics, you know, Brother Lawrence wrote this book, The Practice of the Presence of God, and, you know, and, and he talked about, you know, washing the dishes as an act of prayer. And Thich Nhat Hanh does that too, you know, how you wash the dishes. So that's important. And then the final thing I would say that is actually, um, that is actually included in those, in those um, kinds of ways of being that I just mentioned is that it's, it's embodied, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's bodily. You know, I'm, at this point in my life, I'm really not very interested in anything that is merely spiritual. And it's, you know, getting, doing yoga, getting into my body. Um, and, and also it's in our bodies that we encounter other human beings. Um, um this is this is this has has um deepened my spiritual life as much as any other any kind of you know technically spiritual activity so part of this is about us like giving ourselves permission to see what is ordinary as a spiritual practice and that is a real relief if you couldn't use the word spiritual would it be a combination mm-hmm. then of empathy presence i'm just wondering what the components are for instance yeah it's think, a good question i'm thinking of a very uh, you know a good friend of mine sam harris certainly controversial <laughs> but very well spoken and very uh thoughtful in in many many respects he has a extremely well-developed meditative practice yeah he's very present when you talk to him and I think he has a uh, he in he does enjoy is able to enjoy the small things, and so he, from that perspective, checks a lot of the boxes. But I don't. He's a 
certainly a non-believer when it comes to religion and would consider himself uh, an atheist more so than spiritual. But yeah. is he spiritual? I, I guess it depends on how we define it. I'm just curious uh, what words you yeah. might, might might use that are the 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 uh, preconditions or the, the components of that. And again, it's, it can be a very personal definition. I'm just yeah. wondering how I you mean, it I mean, spirituality is one of these words that I... I, I try not to overuse because um, it is amorphous. Um, I also think you can't you can't avoid it. Um, I so so I know that for um, for for people who are atheist or agnostic, you find different degrees of comfort with this with the spirituality language, and I. So let me just say this: I I don't think that you anybody stops having a spiritual life because of the absence of a belief in God. Um, I I think an atheist can have a spiritual life, and I think you know every atheist I know has a spiritual life. I also acknowledge that some of them wouldn't like that language, and I and I and I would honor that. Um, so it's not a it's not about faith. Um, I, I would say inner life, interior life, is one way to approach it. It doesn't that doesn't quite get at spiritual, but it gets pretty close to me. And again, there are as many ways of doing inner life and interior life, you know, as there are people. For sure. Do you, here's a here's a different question, which is this is from a fan. What do you think about the notion that wisdom comes with age? Uh, and if so, how can we become wise beyond our years? <laughs> so I think um, wisdom does not necessarily come with age. <laughs> with, uh, with, you know, some people, some people get old and wise and some people just get old. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, um, and I'd love to hear how you define it. I mentioned Sam. Yeah. I've, I, Sam has jokingly said before that wisdom in some capacity, and I'm paraphrasing, is is learning to follow your own advice. <laughs> Something along those lines, which I liked quite a bit, but yeah. Yeah. How do you think of this? About the a definition of wisdom? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would, I want to say that to me, um, wisdom, to me, every stage of life, there, there, are, there, there's a capacity for wisdom at many different stages of, of any life, I think. Um, so, so yes, there is something very special about a person who has lived a long time and accumulated wisdom by way of experience, the fullness of the human experience, by how they have moved through that and what they've internalized as they've moved through, what they've integrated into their wholeness, like how they've integrated what has gone wrong into their wholeness. Um, uh, so that's, but that's just one kind of wisdom. I, you know, there's a, there's a wisdom of young children that can be uncanny, right? They're, you know, four-year-olds say things and ask things um, that drive to the heart of the matter. There's a wisdom um, of, of teenagers and of people in their 20s. There's this, there's this ability to kind of see the world whole and to have a whole vision of of change and this you know this fierceness this urgency about that um so i think there are these flashes of wisdom at it you know at different stages of life 
and that it is it is something that's accessible that we can that we can practice and aspire to um like we practice and aspire to other skills how i define it um contradicts that a little bit because ultimately and you know it's interesting because i wrote a whole book about wisdom without defining wisdom so as soon as i as soon as i was out talking about the book this is one of the first questions people would ask me how do you define wisdom and i realized i've never done that i mean you could say that it was you know a few hundred pages about it but but what i think um distinguishes wisdom from in you know knowledge or accomplishment um or intelligence. Um, I think you know a wise person can have all those things, but it's not a possession. It's not like you look at someone, you know, as like you can do. They are smart. They are intelligent. They are accomplished. The measure of wisdom is the imprint a life makes on other lives, on the world around it. And, and you know, with a wise person, it's just it's almost something that's palpable. It's something you can see. That that that's kind of where I've come. I like that. Um, with the definition. I'm jumping from, from one big concept to another, but I, I, I think these are worth exploring. So here's a question. So Krista herself is very calming, very good at finding meaning. Can you ask her how she does it? How does she consistently see the best and most meaningful things in the world around her? This is, and this is something just out of pure self-interest I'd love to hear you answer because I'm very, I, I can sometimes get so trapped with blinders on that... Mm-hmm. I find it difficult to see the best and most meaningful things in the world around me. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, well, I, I, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what people's experience of me are, you know, are these these very intense containers in which I'm fully present to another human being and have immersed myself in who they are. And it is, you know, I am there, that's right, to absolutely draw out the best of them, to help them put words around something maybe they've never put words around, and that we're all present while that happens. Now, I'm I'm actually, you know, I'm going to be kind to myself, and I'm going to say that at this point in my life, I am I am actually getting to the point where I I I, I live that way a lot of the time. But I couldn't have said that for the first 50 years. <laughs> I mean, I, really, the short answer to that question is practice. You know, at some point, about 15 years ago, I, I, I started walking in this direction. And I, and I was fortunate to, to, to create this job that allows me to do this with an intensity and a primacy in my life. But I, you know, I... I I, I don't think you have to have this job to be doing this. Um, I've I keep putting myself in this position, and um, whatever you know, any time you keep putting yourself in a certain place in a certain position, practicing certain things year after year, it changes you. And this has changed me. What is the position that someone else could put themselves in mm-hmm. if they if they wanted a homework assignment? Oh, I just, I think you could do this in, you know, you can do this in terms of how you, how you interact with your colleagues in the workplace. I mean, you know, this is one of the things Adam Grant writes about, right? Um, Givers in the workplace change everybody. 
and uh, and I also know, and this is just has been a, is true across this my career as anybody else is that the workplace can be you know one of the most stressful places to do that. Like I always wanted to do a show. Well, we were a big part of a big media organization until three years ago, and I always wanted to do a radio show called "The Problem of Evil in the Workplace," which I thought like the, like evil is so much greater and workplaces then you know, I mean much that was much more devastating than uh whatever if a um my my fear of um earthquakes or fires um so you know where you work where you live um with your children with your you know with your family becoming a neighbor in a different way i mean and I, I just, I feel like a, the great challenge that is before us now as a country is to, to figure out what common life means, to reimagine it. I, I think we actually have to reinvent it. I think even if our political life weren't so fractured, we'd have to reinvent it. And maybe this is one reason our political life is so fractured. It's just not going to look like the same thing in the 21st century as it did in the latter half of the 20th century. And and that is about, in very practical ways, kind of getting to know our neighbors who have become strangers. And, I mean, that is that is a calling, right, for now. And so anytime any of us do that in whatever small way in our communities, that is practicing presence, right, and practicing real curiosity. And... Uh, working on asking better questions and um, caring to find out details and nuance and complexity. You know, those are ways to talk about what I do in this work I do. And also not to respond too quickly to statements. Another quote of yours that I like, and you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but I can disagree with your opinion, it turns out, but I can't disagree with your experience. And I think that there's so many problems in this world, in this country, certainly because people confuse the two. And if someone is telling you a factual recounting of something that happened to them, that is very different from saying, I think you should, or providing an opinion. Those are two very, very different things. And it's, it's a keeping that in mind is very helpful to mitigate overreacting emotionally to other people in i suppose the uh the stoic sense that is very practical and applicable less than the trying to remain spock at all times and <laughs> right. uh, I've, I've really found that that quote of yours that concept at least very helpful to think about like experience opinion those are two different things so you can provide your experience yeah. without also, and even preface it, and I've done this before, and say, I can only comment on my personal experience. I don't want to give you a yeah. bunch of opinions, but here's been my experience. This is what has happened to me, or something along those lines. And it diffuses a lot of these potentially volatile situations. Yeah, it, hu- it humanizes. Um, we, we, we have all these ways we think we know each other, or we think we know what each other are about. And they they have to do with positions and issues, right? Or you know how somebody voted. We don't know. We don't know each other on a human level. I mean, you know, I've been thinking since the election about. Um, um, I I learned 
I, I started, you know, my vision for, for doing this and kind of a bit of my methodology started in this project I did for some Benedictine monks back in the late 90s. And they they were ecumenists, which which when they started doing it was a completely revolutionary thing. I'm going to plead um, ignorance here. Could you define that for me? What, ecumenism? Yes, please. Well, it was like inter-Christian um, inter interdenominational conversation, which you know we forget that in the 1960s it was absolutely radical when Catholics and Protestants started talking to each other, right. and then when they added Jews, you know, it was amazing. Um, so it's and you know the difference between Armenian Orthodox Christians and Nazarene Holiness Christians is as vast as the difference between you know different faiths. Um, so so that's what this place was about. But they they would take up big theological questions and big theological divides um, by posing a question and asking people to answer the question through the story of your life, which actually you still got to really big, heady places in the discussion, but you humanized it as you got there. And I've been thinking since the election, um, I think this would work. Like, <laughs> I don't know how it would be structured, but what if we could have create these experiences where where people got together in trustworthy spaces where they could be safe, they were safe, and you just you had people start talking about, you know, you know, uh, why did you vote for Donald Trump or why did you vote for Hillary Clinton? Answer the question through the story of your life. And then we would actually start talking about eventually the things we need to start talking about, you know, including economics and our children's future and the fact that we have a shared stake in all of our children's future. I'm glad you brought that up because it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, I didn't ever put this together because I, I hadn't heard you say that before, but it's also intensely practical to... Yes to say, answer the question through the story experience of your life, because it has full context. It's not abstract. And in fact, yeah. in, there's an organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization, and they have chapters all over the country and regional and citywide uh, groups of entrepreneurs who want to help one another. And I'm going to probably get this slightly off because I'm not, I've spoken at a number of uh, EO events, but I'm not a member myself. Since I live in Silicon Valley, I can't escape entrepreneurs. I don't, <laughs> I don't really. <laughs> right. But uh, the rules, as I remember them, uh, are that you, the group, the chapter is split into, I think they're called forums, which are groups of, say, four to five people. And I'm sure my fans will correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But when someone in the forum, that is your sort of social accountability group and primary cohort. When someone asks a question, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to franchise in this following state, uh, what should I do? Or I'm trying to solve this particular problem with hiring or going public or fill in the blank. You, you cannot uh, use conjecture in answering the question. You can mm -hmm. only answer the question through a story or experience that is from your personal life. That, yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. That's, that's it. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the only thing, so it's very practical. It's it's something anybody could do. The only thing that we'd have to start, that we'd have to create, that we that we don't have now is we we don't like is, and this is a big order is space and time, right? We would need to create 
to somehow have spaces, as I say, that are trustworthy, where it would be reasonable to invite people in and expect them to be to show some vulnerability and tell some truth. And and it, it wouldn't actually be reasonable to ask people to do that in most of our political spaces and a lot of our public spaces now. So that's something we'd have to make happen. And also time, right? That you because like with these monks, with these gatherings in Collegeville, they would have five days. So like everybody would spend 45 minutes or an hour answering that question on the first day. And then that was an incredible foundation. And it's hard for the next few days. And it's hard to imagine us carving out that kind of time and space. But um, I think we could figure this out if we wanted to. And I think also going into thinking about these larger polarizing issues with the expectation that the conversations are going to be very uncomfortable and that none of the biggest problems you'll face in your own life, in the lives of others, as a community, a country, fill in the blank, are going to be comfortable (laughs) And uh, when you have these stakes involved. And that it's, if I could implore anyone listening to this to do one thing, certainly in the US and, and elsewhere, is to regularly practice exposing yourself to uncomfortable conversations so that you can get better at navigating them without vilifying the other person or emotionally mm-hmm. overreacting. It requires practice, just like negotiation, mm-hmm. just like playing tennis, just like anything else. And if you wait for the big, big, big topic, whether it's some aspect of race or otherwise, to debut your conversational skills with discomfort, you're going to make huge mistakes that are going to be counterproductive and probably destructive. Yeah. And 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 the other thing I think that goes along with that is is question the reflexes you have about how you walk into those encounters and what you're going to talk about. Because we 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 basically we're we're on all these we have all these kind of dead end, these like built-in instincts about you know, the debate we will have or how we will present or defend our position or be advocates uh, or change someone's mind or or we go in with all kinds of assumptions about them. And and so I, don't, I really don't think this is rocket science, but part of what we have to work through are all the, the instincts we're carrying that don't serve us well. Um, and then... Um, you know, the other thing is, so, and this is connected to that, we don't, if you want to talk to people across difference, you, you don't probably start with that, right? Like, we, we just totally. think we have to do everything head on, you know, we're Americans, we have to accomplish something, we've got an hour here. <laughs> and so I'll tell you one of the most hopeful stories, I've been talking about this, that I've heard, like, that um, I think a, a good model for this is, I was in Iowa, like, the week after the election, and there was this woman who talked to me about um, how she and a group of parents who she knows who were pretty much split down the middle in terms of who they voted for in the election share a concern about the effect the corrosive public speech and the corrosive campaign had had on their children, their children's imaginations. And so they were gathering across these divides of politics with this shared entry point of all of them caring about their children and you know whether whoever they voted for 
being able to have this really constructive conversation that was that was meaningful to all of them about what they're going to teach their children, how they're going to talk to them, the realities they want to create moving forward. And, um, you know, I think they'll get really, you can get really far down the road with that without ever having to talk about who you vote, why you voted for, who you voted for. And yet it creates a possibility of relationship, which creates all kinds of other possibilities, kind of coming at this in a, from a sideways direction. Absolutely. I think that the, sometimes the most directly impactful approach is the oblique approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, the slant, coming at the slant, the slant, coming at a slant. And one of the books that helped me a lot to navigate my own emotions so that I could less trigger other people's emotions, so it's a win-win, was Radical, it still is, I reread this book on a, on a fairly regular basis, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Found it, oh, I haven't read that. I found it hugely helpful for me hmm. personally. What books other than your own, have you gifted the most to other people? Um, I have I have gifted that Rilke book. Um, and who are the authors again? This was uh, uh, Love Joanna Letters to God. It's Joanna Macy, M-A-C-Y, and Anita Barrows. It's uh, Rilke's Book of Hours, and the subtitle is Love Poems to God. I have gifted Pema Chodron's um, When Things Fall Apart, that's kind of a sacred text that I carry around with me at all times because things are always falling apart. Like that's a book I feel like I can pick up anywhere at any moment and read a paragraph and um, it will be redemptive. Um, I also love Rilke's um, Letters to a Young Poet. I give that to young people. And... Um, it's not really about poetry. It's about life. And there's some wonderful things in there about love and the facile understanding of love that we walk around with and, and the idea of giving yourself time to grow up and grow into what love can be. Um, it's a good selection. At other times mm -hmm. in my life, I gave away all the books I loved. And as a result, I... <laughs> I don't have many books. <laughs> <laughs> if you were, say, given the opportunity or maybe the assignment to teach a lecture, not a lecture, a seminar, it's an ongoing class with either college freshmen or college seniors, which would you choose and what would you teach? Oh, sorry, college freshmen or college seniors? Right. Gosh, I don't know how I would choose. I do spend a lot of time with people that age. And I love it. Um, I guess I would choose college seniors just because I think, you know, you're so much under formation in those years and still as a college senior. What would I teach? Oh, they're, they're growing up into this world of disarray now. I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is a teaching subject, but I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, the narrative that we all walk around internalizing and working with, which is the narrative we receive from, you know, whatever was in the New York Times today, what it was in the headlines of NPR, or whatever our media, chosen media is, BuzzFeed or, you know, whatever it is we're reading. Um, and how that is not the whole story. And how when we walk around too shaped by 
um, by that narrative, it f- well, it, it's overwhelming. It actually is very paralyzing, and it it's it doesn't it does not tell or give people to work with um, other realities, like generative realities, that the things that are actually saving us, the things the things that are growing us up. Um, and that also, like focusing on that and focusing on a long view of time as opposed to this twenty four seven instant view of time, uh, which makes us small, um, taking seriously treating as a data point the beautiful and noble people and projects you see around you, you know, not that that doesn't it doesn't refute. The, the hard things that are happening, but it's also true. What exercises might you have those students do or readings that you would assign to help them with this? Oh, I would just want them to get a big view of time, you know, to, to see this as a moment uh, within, within a much larger canvas of time and to see what we internalize as the news which we which we too often internalize as like the whole of you know the uh, kind of a uh, a snapshot of reality you know to to be able to to create some skills to put all of that into perspective and to ask what might really be important that's not that we're not talking about i don't know if i had to teach skills i suppose which is really your question um i i think these days I would love to do, and I actually, I did a, or I didn't do create a course, but Udemy, is that how you say that? They created a course on, I did something through Acumen, which is a course on listening and conversation. And I, 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 I would love to, um, to teach just about, you know, the art of conversation, um, the practice of listening, like practical tools, as well as the kind of presence the intentionality that needs to go into that um these are practical skills like i think listening is a you know basic social art um and it, it's not just that we have to relearn them and that we haven't, haven't kind of learned these things it's that the, the things that we have very actively learned work against them so we've all really been trained in the tools of advocacy presenting representing our position and and those and we need those skills but we actually need to kind of retire them also we need to learn we need to we need to dampen those those as these reflexively the only things we know how to do and so i think that could be fun like to you know to and to and the art of asking better questions uh, absolutely i mean the quality of our questions determining the quality of our life or lives as uh, Tony Robbins would say, I think it's reflected not only in the questions that you ask others, but the questions you ask yourself, which is part yeah. of the beauty of yeah. what's been so fun uh, about slowly trying to strengthen my Bambi legs and, and interviewing myself is becoming better at asking questions in my own head. <laughs> uh, who are some of the best listeners you know or have known? Well, sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, you're a professional listener. You must have grown up with great listeners. But I'm, I'm the other story. I'm the story of the person who grew up surrounded by people who didn't listen. And so in, in the absence of that, I felt my need of it. 
Um, so I did. I didn't grow up with a lot of models, and I don't. You know, while there are certainly many good journalists and um, hosts, um, you know, as I say, I don't really take my models from um, kind of traditional media. Uh, I mean, the the good listeners I know are not famous people. Right? Well, that's okay. They don't. <laughs> have, they don't have to be famous. They're my they're they're my friend Nell, who's in her eighties, who is just one of the wisest people I know and one of the dearest people I know, and the person who encouraged me to to work on this project that sounded pretty far fetched when I first had the idea. And she's just, you know, she really cares. She's really curious, and she's also a joyful person. And, um, and that, and joy is infectious. Um, and you know, so she's a great listener. Do you have any favorite documentary or movie, favorite documentaries or movies? I'm so bad at these questions about favorites. Like everything goes out of my (laughs) mind. And in fact, you know, people, people, a lot of people ask me what is my favorite interview. And in fact, I just had this exchange about a week ago where I was a little bit frosty with somebody because they said, who's your favorite interview ever? And I said, I, you know, I can't choose. I said, I love them all. And who's your favorite interview this year? And, 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 um, and I always say my favorite interview is the last one I did. And, and they said, well, you're being very diplomatic. And I said, no, I'm not being diplomatic. It's true. So like, I would say my favorite movie would probably be the last one I watched, except I watch a lot more TV than movies these days. I love how we're how we're relearning storytelling and doing it well on TV. Some incredible writing, uh, yeah, and uh, and otherwise on TV. What do you what are you watching currently, or what's the last memorable TV show that you watched? Yeah, I think I watched a lot of things I loved this summer. I loved um, I loved the Night Manager. Um, I loved, you know, I was re- I've been reading John Le Carre in all my years in Germany, and um, um, I love that kind of thing. I love those thriller stories. I, I loved True Blood. <laughs> I loved the vampires. <laughs> um, I, this is so. There's so much TV that I like right now. I'm watching The Affair. Ah, oh, The Affair. All right. So, yeah. just as a quick side note for The Affair. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it, or a good portion of it, takes place in a restaurant called The Lobster Roll out on Long Island in Montauk. Sometimes Is that a real place? It's a real place. And my second ever job was as a busboy at The Lobster Roll. <laughs> so Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying the show? I haven't seen the show, in fact. I haven't. My, uh, I, I know a few people I grew up with, fellow townies on Long Island, who have said it's very surreal to watch because... <laughs> I remember getting yelled at by rich city people and having to clean up their oh, that messes. That's so funny. That's so funny that yeah. it's a real place. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Very much a real mm. place. Uh, if you had one gigantic billboard, you could put a short message on it to get it out to millions of people. What would, what, <laughs> what would you put on that? I think I'm really bad at these questions. <laughs> I can, um, I can, I can, I can zig instead of zag here, and we can do different types of questions. But if anything comes to mind, let me know. Otherwise, we can okay, we can table okay. it and come back. Maybe you know, maybe that, maybe that line that you started with right now, that that um, 
you know, that anger is what fear and pain look like when they show themselves in public. You know, mm-hmm. I think that would be a good thing for people to reflect on even briefly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked about a little bit about your morning. You mentioned the, I guess it was meditation while your tea was steeping. If I remember mm-hmm. correctly. What is, what is the first, say, 60 minutes of a good day for you? What does that look like? Um, yeah, good days. I, I've had a pretty good sleep. Love my sleep. I get up and I do, I start, I make, I make my tea and then I... What time do you wake up and what kind of tea? I wake up about 6.30. Mm-hmm. What, what's your go-to tea? Uh, it's Yorkshire Gold. Yorkshire Gold. Is that a black tea? Yeah, which is what, is, is what makes good strong black tea in Minnesota. I think everywhere you are with the water, it's, it's different. Yeah, I sit for about 10 minutes and I... Sometimes I read a little bit, like I read a little Thomas Merton or a little Pema Chodron or a little Rilke. And then I, I actually have started adding prayer back into my meditation. I realize that's my mother tongue. And that's kind of been a revelation for me to start doing that again. Um, what do your, as someone, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not, not particularly religious. What type of, I was just speaking to a very close friend of mine who is recently about this. What, what are your prayers like? What uh, what are you? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I I for a long time I used to have a a book of common prayer, and I used to like read the Compline, um, these Compline services, these ancient services, very poetic. And recently, I have never t- talked to anybody about this. This summer, I I got quiet and rested for the first time in about ten years. It was amazing. <laughs> I was on Big Sur. It was incredible, and. One thing I did is I actually wrote a prayer. It was like the prayer of my life right now. And it was such an incredible thing to do. I never thought of doing that. because. But I think the thing is, and this is where I've been saying, you know, I think spiritual life is a very, like, we all have personality types. And so you have to find what works for you. And um, I grew up Southern Baptist, which is all very free-flowing. And, you know, like when the minister was praying, you were supposed to be praying your own prayer in your head. And there's something about me that likes, I like liturgy. I like rituals. So, um, and I, but I think previously I would have thought that even writing my own poem, would, my own prayer would be, um, would be not as good as a prayer that had been around for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, but somehow I managed to write something that is a really good way for me to um, move into the day. Um, and and so and so I so I I say that and 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 I also have some some time of silence and just breathing and sometimes kind of a, a mantra and all of this in ten minutes is that incredible I'm so productive <laughs> um, and of course just like everybody else um, I will I will be distracted for six of those ten minutes um, <laughs> but I think that's why having a bit of liturgy that you have to stick to right like having something to hang with and on um, and then I and then I do. Um, make my tea and put my milk in it, and I and I I get to email. If I have writing to do, um, I do that in the mornings, just when my mind is clear. Um, and then I'm happy if I've if I've um, kind of prepared the day um, with important correspondence or with getting some important ideas out. And then eventually I go to work about nine thirty or ten, and usually I have something to record in the morning. I have to ask because my fans will certainly ask me why I didn't ask you. 
and you don't have to share, but would you be open to sharing your prayer? Or is that something you'd prefer not to not to discuss? Um, you mean now? Yeah. Just tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can tell you what it's. A, I mean, I can t- maybe I can tell you. Uh, gosh, can I even? It's, or, it's funny because I've it's, learned it. Yeah, or what it's heart. about. However, however, I, yeah. I, I know people would love more yeah. more, well, more details so, because it's so, so valuable. In to a you. way, yeah. So in a way, it it reflects what I've been learning about myself, like what I need to work on my inner life, my spiritual work, right? Like it, it's I've the thing that I've been I I pray to keep learning, um, to open my heart. And keep learning um, to let go of the kind of resistance and protectiveness that saved me when I was growing up, and and that doesn't that you know that became an armor around my natural love and trust and softness. That's kind of my life work, right? And I'm so much better. I mean, just the fact that I can say it that way means I'm I'm getting somewhere, but it's still my life work. And uh, you know, I I pray that. Um, you know, it's like when when I incline to ambition, to to know to 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 know to to take delight, um, uh, and that what I fear, you know, that I might welcome, and I pray to about blessing that you know constantly knowing the difference between intentions and consequences, because I think there's something you know mysterious about. Um, you know what becomes of our actions that we don't control, and that that's actually largely a wonderful thing. Um, but it it doesn't uh, it doesn't necessarily converge with kind of my American can-do uh, accomplishment mentality. Uh, to to lean into that, that you know you do the right thing for the right reason, and to some extent you have to let go of what becomes of it. Um, and uh, you know those—that's kind of some of the big ideas. Of course, again, I say it every morning, and now I, <laughs> I, you know, I—I I spent some time last December with in Austria with Brother David Stendel Rost. I don't know if you heard that interview. He's just—he's—he's he's a Benedictine monk. He's Austrian. He's one of the great people in the world thinking about gratitude, and. Um, that's probably one of those words I avoid a little bit too, because it's just been on too many Hallmark cards. <laughs> um, what I like about him is that, you know, he lived through the fascist occupation of his country as a teenager. Like he's really known, he knows how gritty the world is. Um, and one of the things he says is that um, it would be absurd to say, for any of us to say that you should be grateful for everything that happens to you. That you should, we don't say that, but you, but that you can be grateful in every moment, and that's really stuck with me. And so that's like that's how my prayer ends. Like teach me to be grateful in every moment, and that's a really, that's a practice that helps me. That's extremely powerful, and thank you for sharing. I'm glad you did. I think that's going to be. <laughs> I think that's. I think that many pieces of that will be extremely helpful for many people. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you first. Well, I certainly did not expect to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect to ask you about it. And it makes me also want to go find wild geese. 
mm. that you mentioned earlier on top of that. Yeah. Well, I uh, just one or two more questions and then I'll let you get back to your day. Uh, and we're this is basically the tail end. I'd like to ask you if you have any, and, I'll, and then I'll ask where people can find you and so on. But first, do you have any requests of my audience, of the people listening? Anything that you'd like them to take away? Anything you'd like them to try? Anything you'd like them to consider or otherwise? Any parting words for the people listening? As, as, I, as I said a minute ago, I'm just intensely aware of how many messages we internalize. And I feel that that gets in the way of people really knowing how much power they have in terms of how they move through the world, you know, the world around them, the people they can see and touch, the, 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 you know, the small and large interactions they have. Like we, we live in this bizarre moment where the places we have wanted to look for modeling and leadership and, you know, the way forward are very dysfunctional and, and partly because of our technology. You know, we're turn of century people. We're in this moment where we were, the, all of us who are adults were, were, were born in one, in one world of assumptions and institutions that made sense. And we are growing up or growing old in a world in which uh, most of our disciplines, you know, the way things have been done don't make sense. And we're, we have to create the changed realities and it's not going to happen from the top. And that's not the way our technology, our, our, our digital world works anyway. But I think we have more, more power, more agency um, to do that than we are made to feel. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful calling and and is and I think we have to like keep you know keep each other company accompany each other in in keeping that sense um so that would be my encouragement somebody was talking to me yesterday about a phrase social courage and that's I think that's a good way to talk I think that's that's something I want to invite people to and call people to and just make clear that that is available to us I think that I can't think of any time when that has been more important, certainly in my lifetime that I'm consciously aware of than, yeah. than right now, being socially courageous, which I think also means probably uh, presenting and potentially defending important views or perspectives or experiences that are very unpopular. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think in terms of the different callings of this moment, and and some of us are going to have to defend and some of us may have to put our bodies in the way of <laughs> of danger that is coming to to some people who are on the front lines of vulnerability and i i also think there's a calling for many of us to be calmers of fear yes and i think there's some very quiet callings right now uh that can also make a huge difference krista this has been so much fun i really appreciate you taking the time and I'd like to encourage people to check out your work. Where can people say hello? Where can people find out more about you? And if you have any recommended starting points, I'm not going to ask you the, the favorite interview question because I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't like getting that any more than you do. But yeah. uh, where can people find you and, and uh, what would you suggest perhaps they, uh, yeah. they start with if you have a recommendation? 
So, yeah, so the website is onbeing.org, and we also have something called the Civil Conversations Project that we're going to be building out. There's also a civilconversationsproject.org website. It actually has a little guide that I wrote that we're calling Better Conversations. And But we have the On Being app in the App Store, and of course you can find the On Being podcast in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Um, I am not on Facebook for some reason. It just makes me break out in hives. But um, I do actually love Twitter. And um, and I mostly go there to just kind of... Uh, I, I kind of um, correspond and communicate with people who reach out to me there. So that's a, that's a good place to check in. Um, at Krista Tippett. Yeah, just at Krista Tippett. Um, two P's, two T's. And, uh, <laughs> you have to do that as much as I do. <laughs> double, double R, double S. But yeah. Tim, I just, I want to thank you so much. Also, I was really tired today. Here we are. Isn't it Friday the 13th today? It is Friday the 13th. Anyway, it's Friday afternoon and I'm, I'm so tired today and I've just, it's been really energizing and you have built something amazing and I'm just, I'm so amazed that you're listening to On Being and I'm, and uh, I'm really uh, grateful to be, to meet your audience, your people like this. Well, it's 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 really fun and meaningful for me to have you on, and uh, I think I and I hope this is is not the last conversation that we have. So, yeah. Well, we have to. We'll get together sometime and talk about Berlin. Yes, and I and <laughs> I would love to do that. And you can listen to my mangled German, but that's okay. Einfuss nach dem anderen. It's uh, one one little step after the other. As I butcher yet another language. <laughs> so thank you so much. And to everybody listening, as always, you can find show notes, links to everything that we discussed at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out as well as every other episode. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is now the number one cloud accounting software designed exclusively for self-employed professionals and used by more than 10 million people. You can send invoices, track your time, and get paid fast, which basically describes the core needs of most entrepreneurs and freelancers. The product was recently relaunched and rebuilt from the ground up, focusing on simplicity and speed. It's an awesome service, and many of you recommended it to me, which is how they came to be a sponsor. Now, I can't cover all of the many, many features, but 
For example, you can take pictures of receipts on your phone using FreshBooks iOS mobile app or connect your bank account or credit card to FreshBooks and watch your expenses automatically import into your account every day. And if you have any questions whatsoever, a real live person answers in less than three rings to help you with all of your needs. So to claim your 30-day unrestricted free trial, that means no credit card needed, and see how the all-new FreshBooks can change your freelancing game, go to freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and enter Tim, T-I-M, in the how did you hear about us section. That is freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and then put Tim, T-I-M, in the how did you hear about us section. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. I've used 99designs for years for all sorts of graphic design needs. Whether you need a logo, website, book cover, or anything else, 99designs was created to make great designs accessible to everyone and to make the process of getting designs much, much easier. So when I first started out, for instance, testing prototype covers and getting prototype covers for the four-hour body, I went the contest route. That is one option. This is a great solution if you're looking for fast, affordable design work and the ability to choose from dozens of options risk-free. Let's say you need something late night, quick turnaround. Well, people in other time zones, other countries can also help you solve that problem. Since then, I've worked with 99designs on a separate path or a different option, and uh, that is the one-to-one project service. So, in a number of cases, and I'll give you one example, when I wanted to create the cover for my audiobook, The Tao of Seneca, this was a very important project to me, I decided to use their one-to-one project service. And with this service, you can invite a specific designer to your project, agree on a price, and then work together until you're satisfied. And they allow you to iterate and provide feedback and all this stuff. And I haven't shared it yet, but we also got some incredibly good, really some of the best illustrations I've ever seen from using this one-to-one project service with a handful of different designers and illustrators. It blew my mind. 99designs makes this all very easy and efficient. So you can check out the Tao of Seneca design and other work that I and your fellow listeners, for that matter, have done on 99designs at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's 99designs.com forward slash Tim.